Better do the duty I'm supposed to do, which is turn the mic on. So how many of you guys is your first time? Great. So uh, thank you for being here, and I'm excited to be able to share with you tonight. And uh, just, you know, truthfully, I, you know, one, it's just incredible to see men come out on a night to, to be here. And so what I want to do is just give you a little bit about myself, and I've got some things I want to share with you. Kind of theme I'm going to talk about tonight is kind of unexpected. Anybody ever have anything unexpected ever happened in their life? Anybody in here? About five of us? Okay. The rest of you guys, you're just too young. Um, it will happen, believe me. So, uh, but, uh, you know, so let me just, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, my mom had three boys. When I was five years old, my dad left. And uh, my mom actually had to have my younger brother go stay with my aunt and uncle for a year. And so, you know, you kind of go through this whole thing of, uh, at least I did, um, when your dad leaves, why would he leave? And so truthfully, for almost all my life, and I'd even say still to today, the way you overcome your dad leaving is you perform. I performed. If I perform at a high enough level, maybe he wouldn't have left. And so you end up taking your life down a path that says, I don't want to be hurt again, and so the way I'm not going to be hurt again is do that. So my mom remarries a couple years later. I, uh, go to, I grew up in Michigan, as I said, I went to school, played tennis, actually was a state champion in tennis, not because I was that good, I just worked harder than everybody else. And, uh, and then uh, went to college for about a year and a half and didn't have any money. And uh, went to work for General Foods. Ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. And about three years later got divorced. And uh, which I knew wasn't what God wanted for me. And so I went through a pretty tough time where I just believed God could never forgive me for having gotten a divorce. And so uh, finally, Fast forward, I spent 16 years with General Foods, ended up marrying my wife and Dinah. We have three daughters, six grandkids. We've been married 37 years, so God could give me a, a second chance. And, uh, and I really did finally believe he, that he could, uh, could forgive me. And so I worked for General Foods for 16 years uh, in Post Cereals. Anybody ever have any cereal from Post Cereals? Yep. Right across the street is Kellogg's. And uh, General Foods was incredibly good to me. I went, as I said, I went to school eight years at night. That's how I finished college. So one of the most unexpected things is that I would ever be in front of people speaking. My mom was a waitress and my dad was a truck driver. And, um, and I was the oldest of three boys. And so uh, from our time in Michigan, Diane and I moved to New York where I worked there at the uh, world headquarters for General Foods in White Plains for two and a half years. And then I spent six years at, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, running the largest coffee plant in the world in Jacksonville. How many have been to the Georgia-Florida game in here? I figure we probably have a few Georgia fans. Yes. So as you go to the game, you can always smell the coffee plant that's right there. I ran that for about six and a half years. And then we moved to Atlanta about 25 years ago. I worked for Frito-Lay and uh, ran operations for Frito-Lay uh, and then was with Honey Baked Ham. And then CEO of Ronstadt, the Dutch staffing company. And traveled back and forth to Europe every month, which sounds glamorous to you do it. 
And, um, <laughs> you know, when you get on a plane and the waitress, no, or the stewardess, oh my gosh, good thing there's no women here, I'd be dead. Um, <laughs> boy, that's Freudian right off the bat. Um, serious trouble. Uh, when a stewardess gets on an international plane and they know your name, you know you're in trouble. And, uh, and so, but I, I loved it because I always wanted to do something internationally, but I never wanted to live overseas. And so God gave me a great chance to do that. And so I did that for seven years. And, um, and so there were four of us that ran the company globally. And so I got to play in the, you know, truthfully during that whole time of my career you know, in the fast lane of uh, all that goes on in the business world. And I loved it. I mean, I, I loved business. So I wanted, one thing I want to be clear tonight, and you know, I'll tell you briefly how I got to the mission. I believe God used me immensely in business. So don't think you've got to leave business to go to be used by God. I'll just give you a small example. When I was with Ronstadt and September 11th happened, we had 285 people working around that building. Praise God, no one died. But my head of HR of our company said our people wanted to do a prayer meeting. My head of HR, we want to do a prayer meeting and they want you to lead it. And so we had 400 corporate staff and we did a prayer meeting around September 11th. And there's a bunch of other stories with that, that I, around just how God could use you. So what I want everyone to hear in this room tonight, God can use you wherever you're at. It's not unique that you be in ministry. I would have never in one million years expected I to be doing what I'm doing. So in 2005, I left Ronstadt exhausted. Anybody in here tired? Yeah, right? So let me just tell you, I'm, I'm older than a lot of you, and I was older when I left Ronstadt. So the treadmill only keeps going faster. And you don't realize it till, I didn't realize it till it was unplugged. And I literally slept 12 to 14 hours the first month. 12 to 14 hours. And the first day I backed out of my garage and hit my daughter's car, which wasn't a good idea either. And, uh, but I just, you know, so I just, the, if you believe the lie, the pace will get better, it doesn't really get better. So at least it didn't in my life, and maybe you'll do it better than I did. And so I left in 05 to kind of figure out, God, what do you want me to do? And all my friends in business said, gosh, you know, why would you leave business? God's giving you this great platform. And all my friends in ministry would say, oh, why wouldn't you not come in ministry? So those great friends were no help. All they wanted to do was give me whatever they wanted me to do. And so uh, a couple years later, uh, I lost both of my parents, my mom and dad, in my uh, first 10 months after I was uh, off, which was really kind of God's timing to give me a chance to spend some time with them. I got a call out of the blue to, uh, from a search firm from a guy who'd been with Spencer Stewart and said, what do you know about the Atlantic Union mission? I think it'd be great for your faith and your experience. And I go, nothing, which I mean nothing. I'd not given anything, not done anything. I'd never done anything inner city ministry. I'd done a lot with my church, done a lot on mission trips, done a lot with men, but I didn't think at all this is where I'd be. But I said, you know, let me, I'll come and talk to you. So I spent about four hours with him and got to learn a little bit about the mission. And with my wife and my three girls, we kind of started the process. And I have to tell you, as I walked through it, God taught me a lot and showed me a lot. Probably one of the biggest things, to be honest, I'll never forget, was we have a women's center that serves about 280 women and kids every day. When I was walking away with the head of our HR committee of our board, there were two little kids standing in the window looking out. And I thought, if I was here 10 years and two kids' lives were changed, it'd be worth it. 
And so, but I'm a pretty unusual candidate. They're talking to pastors and guys reading missions and this guy, crazy guy who was a CEO of a large company. And I found out a few years ago, it was not a unanimous vote for me to come on board. <laughs> they didn't tell me right away. And, uh, but as I went through that process, here's what God said to me. Number one, I want you to be fully dependent upon me. And that's easy preaching and hard living. Number two, I'd spent my whole life building great teams and organizations. And I thought if you could really do that in a ministry to the poor, because one of my high frustrations with ministry is mediocrity, there is no place in here God did anything not with excellence. And so when the church uses an excuse, there's no excuse. God does it with excellence. And so the third thing was you could go do anything. People wanted me to go run companies. Would you really go serve the least? And... In August 1st in 08, I started the journey at the Atlanta Mission. Anybody know what happened in October of 08? <laughs> Market crashed, everything got terrible. Our first year, we lost $1.2 million at the Mission. Luckily, we had a reserve. So great business guy managing the Mission well. But what I want you to know is that the thing that I would tell you is it's been the hardest job I've ever had in my life, and I really mean that. And I cannot imagine my life if I hadn't done it. Because it has changed me. Because every day when someone shows up with everything they own in a bag, it gives me a very different perspective. Because I got a lot of bags to be filled for all my stuff. And so, you know, that's what got me to the Atlanta Mission. Atlanta Union Mission, we became the Atlanta Mission. And what I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about is kind of this whole thing of unexpected. And I want to start with just that, you know, when you look into the scriptures, the thing is because, men, you know, what I love about this is I believe. And one of the biggest things I love about the mission and one of the things that breaks my heart is I look at men like this size group and I know God has a purpose for everyone in this room and that you have, and God has placed dreams in you to be done and used by him, just like our men at the Atlanta Mission. And I've seen it beaten out of them, to be quite honest. And they don't believe they could ever do it again. And they don't think it's possible. Because of the mistakes they've made, or something that's happened in their life, or they're not good enough, or you name it. Just like some of you probably in the room tonight. My guess is somebody in here has made a couple mistakes. I know I have. But when you look at what Christ, when Christ came, you know who he was with all the time? Unexpected people. In fact, it's what drove everybody crazy, especially the Pharisees. What in the world is he doing with those people, right? You know who they told he was coming? The shepherds. It started right off. Who are we going to tell? Our buddies, Pharisees are all on the phone waiting for the call. We're going to tell the shepherds. And by the way, they were scared to death. And if we had any lawyers in the room, if you were a shepherd, you couldn't stand in front of the courts because no one would listen to a shepherd. And the angel would say, he came for all. He came for everybody. And so the whole unexpected piece of him was he came for everybody. 
And because he came to a shepherd, everyone could believe it. And those shepherds began telling him. He was with the Samaritans. <laughs> he was with people who were sick and lame. He kept always hanging around with people that were unexpected. And let me tell you, for me personally, what's happened in my life is I hang around a lot of people today that I didn't expect ever to hang around. I can tell you when I was CEO, I didn't hang around any of the people at the mission. I'm none. Not because they probably didn't matter to me, I just didn't hang around them. And so I didn't have relations. Like, you know, I, I was as hard as anybody would be on crime until I realized a felony is a life sentence. It's not a sentence you serve in jail because, by the way, you can't get a place to live, you can't get a job, you can't get that done. I didn't know that. Because you know why? I didn't spend a lot of time with felons before. But those unexpected relationships began to teach me. And I began to learn. And God began to show me things. And I think part of the reason Jesus was with people no one expected was he wanted people to know all people mattered to him, all people were important to him, he had plans for all people, and we could all learn. I totally believe God could get rid of the poor tomorrow. They're here for one reason, us. Because I know Jim Reese needs them. And so when you look through the scriptures, you just see all this unexpected stuff. And then I look at my life. Who in your life is unexpected that you're with? You know, one of the things, in 1993, I was at Promise Keepers in Boulder, Colorado, and it had a huge impact on my life. And one of the things the Lord said to me then, which was like, I have no idea why you're saying this, was this, this question about racial reconciliation. And I'm like, I'm a white guy in the business world. What am I going to do with this? Fast forward. 25 years now. I have a whole different appreciation because I have friends that are not the same color as me that I didn't understand. When I watched Hidden Figures, I got mad. And you know why I got mad? Why didn't I know those women had that much impact on our space program. And so unexpected relationships. What does it do? How does it change you? How does God use it? And you really see it through the scripture. So that one is, what about the whole thing with the unexpected relationships? The other thing that happens in my life is with those unexpected relationships, it really creates a very different person in me. Changes me. How's it change you, Jim? By giving you a couple examples. One, I, I go to, I've gone to church at Fellowship Bibleship Church for 25 years. And uh, my pastor there is Crawford Lorette, African-American guy that is probably my dearest friend who married my daughter. And I don't have no idea where anybody stands politically. I can guess. <laughs> because I know where I stand politically. But when Crawford called me after President Obama was elected, 
and was crying because he could say to his grandsons for the first time in his life, he really believed, he really believed, he could look at him and say, you could be president. I would have never known that. I didn't understand that story. Or two weeks ago, or three weeks ago on a Tuesday morning, when I'm doing a Bible study with 50 guys and a bunch of groups, and a 26, 27-year-old African-American looks up and says, and he was speaking for the whole group, now 60 men, so imagine, it's kind of not as big as this group, but it's this group. And he raises his hand and he says, Jim, why will no one talk to us while we're on the street? Why will no one talk to us? See, the real issue with poverty isn't financial. Don't believe the lie. It's not financial. It's relational poverty. No relationships. And you know, when he said that to me, it literally broke my heart because he was so incredibly sincere. And so I had to come up with an answer, and so, you know, I, what was my answer, right? Well, it's a problem this big. It's not easy to answer. Here's what I do know, is I can't change anybody else, but I can do something different myself. What if we start talking to each other? What if you talk to each other, and somebody sees you guys always talking to each other, and because they get comfortable because you're talking, they'll talk. Let's do that. And I left the room and went into an office and wept because it was a terrible answer. Because I'm thinking of all the problems he has, if he's going to have the courage to say that in front of a group. Now, I'm going to tell you, I would never have ever realized how hard it is to be on the streets and truthfully to be poor and not know anyone would talk to me and what that would do to me. And so are we in places that you can have unexpected relationships that can create some of that unexpected change in you. Because you're looking at a guy hit 10 years ago, let me just tell you, and part of my whole heart of being here tonight is, I don't want you to wait as long as I did. You could, don't wait as long as I did. Don't miss what I missed. Because it's changed my life. In early January, I've got six grandkids. Yay! And uh, <laughs> four girls and two boys. And so we do this thing called Grand Adventure. I go along, my wife plans it, if I'm really honest with you. So it's kind of the way it works. Anybody else have that problem in their house, right? Yeah. Good, I'm not alone. And, uh, and so what, what, what we do is we, it's kind of a day to go away with your grandparents and spend. So we went to the aquarium. We had a fabulous day. We had so much fun. And so I course downtown. How do I save money? I park at the Mission so I don't have to pay any parking, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And so we walk over to the aquarium, you know. By the, and by the way, the Mission, we got a discount on our ticket. And I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. But it just timed it for our birthday. If you, anyone here doesn't know, if you go on your birthday, it's free. Does anybody know that? Only reason I know that is all of our clients, guess when they go to the aquarium? On their birthday, because it's free. Can you imagine, so you're in our homeless shelter, they get to go across the street on their birthday, big day, because they really love getting a chance to go do that. And by the way, the aquarium does a lot more for us than that. But so we spend that time with Owen and Eli. Owen's my six-year-old. 
And then we are, uh, they did the Sky Loops, Ferris wheel, whatever it's called, downtown. They did that, I didn't. I'm scared of heights. <laughs> so just be courageous and tell you all that. I'm, I'm, I really was taking the pictures, but uh, I was scared of heights. And so we come back to the mission, and it's probably about 3.30. And there's about 15 guys that are kind of lined up. It's a cold night. It's a very cold day. Wind's blowing like crazy. And they're coming in to, to spend the night. And my grandson uh, looks at me and says, uh, Papa, does those guys not have a place to stay? Papa, are those guys homeless? Yeah, Owen. And his heart and his face was so heavy. See, now on the other side of that, you walk through that door, we're serving 400 men. He didn't see those. He saw the 15 waiting to come in. And my little grandson had this unbelievable heart of why they didn't have a home. And what was that going to be like? So, unexpected relationships, creating unexpected change. And then finally, unexpected grace. See, one of the things I've learned, and I think one of the things Christ did in here, was that when you really get to walk or you're in somebody else's shoes, you get a chance to begin to understand and give grace that I wouldn't have given before. Like, I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't have given much grace at all to someone who was, had a felony over a drug issue until you find out there are three kids in a car, they're 18, one of the guys is in the back seat, and he goes in. Now, he shouldn't have been there. I get all that. But you know what it cost him? Or, and you're with our women and kids, so we probably have 75 or 80 kids that are spending the night with us tonight. 60% of our kids will have been sexually abused already. Gives you a whole different grace when you see people struggle. Because of relationships I didn't expect to have. Or when you watch a mom trying to figure out how to be a mom because she never had a mom. Gives you unexpected grace. And so my, part of my challenge is where are, you, where are the unexpected relationships? They can be at work. They don't have to be there. There's probably people at work that if you even had a relationship with them would be different for you. I'm totally convinced it would change you. And I'm totally convinced it would give you an extra grace. And, you know, what I want to close in and then take questions is one of the most unexpected things that took place in the scriptures might be something that needs to take place here tonight for somebody in this room even. There was a guy named Saul walking down a road. And out of nowhere, something happened. Jesus called him. 
Who are you, Lord? Christ. Now remember, this is the guy who's killing Christians, doing all that, not in a good place, walking down the road. And what happens? Bam. He meets Christ on that road. Truly an unexpected relationship for him. He didn't expect to meet him. His eyes would go blind. He couldn't see for three days. He'd go into the city. There'd be the guy who'd take care of him who says, you know who this guy is? He kills people like us. Yeah, bring him in. He'd become baptized, be a follower of Christ, and his name would be changed. And a huge portion of this book would be written by him. And he would serve him much of his life out of prison and would be used by God to create unbelievable churches. Who here tonight, who here tonight might be walking down a road? And maybe you're walking down that road because you don't want to see him. You might know about him just like Saul knew about him. Maybe you're afraid. I don't know. His life was never the same. My life was never the same. God really has a plan for you. And maybe you don't believe like I didn't believe you're worth loving. See, because I really struggled with my dad leaving. Anybody here's dad leave? Yeah, not unusual, right? Or maybe you had your dad stay and it wasn't any better. I don't know. <coughs> but here's what I want you to know tonight, men. God absolutely loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And he has an incredible purpose for your life. That's why I love this whole thing. He's got a purpose for you. But it might need to start for you with that first unexpected relationship. And that's the relationship to know Christ. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's just coming back to where he's at. But I know in this room, God has great things planned by everyone in this room. So, thanks for listening. I'd love to take some questions. And uh, any, any questions? Anything's fair game? Not to be confused that I'll have uh, great answers, but uh, I will. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so I've been in a small group with two guys for 25 years. And if you would meet the two of them and me, you'd say we never should have ever been in a small group ever, let alone 25 years. And uh, one guy's a sales guy who high D runs over people. The other guy's a pastor who actually started to walk through the Bible. And their unexpected relationships, one of the things we would do with each other is we'd go away once a year and we could say to each other, 
um, one thing that we needed to hear, but we couldn't respond. And Bob said two things to me. One year he said to me, until you understand no one's going to unconditionally love you on earth except Jesus, you're going to always struggle with being accepted. Maybe somebody else here has that problem. It was right on for me. And number two, he said to me, until I knew this word better than I knew it at that point, God wasn't going to be able to use me as well as he wanted to. And that was in 1996 he said that to me. And there were others. I had great people in business. I was incredibly blessed in business with some people that were great leaders that shouldn't have. I had a tennis coach who helped me in high school. When I look back on my life, I, I will tell you the darkest time of my life, men, about a three-year window, I mapped this out. Guess what I didn't have in my life? No other men. Men like being alone. Right? <laughs> yeah. Men like being alone. And I like being alone. And guess what? When you're alone, you talk to yourself. You tell yourself what you want to believe. You do all these things. I run from this book when I'm alone. So, yeah, that's the, the unexpected thing. So, that, but I, so I just encourage you men, get other men in your life. Those relationships have been the most pivotal. And you know one of the neatest things is? What it meant to my daughters. Which I didn't know. But it was a comfort. Yes? Yeah, so um, you always thought your kind of prayer and I uh, think about other, you said there's other opportunities where men just line so this in a work environment, how do you portray that? I mean, I, I was, that's something I struggle with. Yeah. Maybe I was super taken. That's a great Yeah, so you know, one of the things is, first of all, here's what I learned. People watch you all the time. They're watching you all the time. Because what they're really trying to feel, especially if they think you're a believer, you know, I've seen this before. So my family was important to me. So you know what I did? I was in my office every morning at 6 o'clock if I was in town. And I'd leave at 5.30 to be home for dinner if I was in town. And so what I saw was, so one of the things is we would we'd do training with our new employees every two weeks. So I would always kind of talk to people about my family, my faith, and how important work was to me. You know, people pay a lot of attention to what you do. A very interesting story. A guy came to know Christ that worked for me, was baptized in our church. I did not know it, but because he watched me for two years. Two years. So I, don't underestimate the power of your testimony by how you live. You know, it was funny when I was in Ronstadt because the Dutch and everybody, you know, they all, none of them were believers. The other thing that was crazy there, so every time I would be in a home in, in the Netherlands with one of my colleagues, the wife would always ask me if I wanted to pray. It was just funny because you come in there, okay, would you like to pray, Jim? Yeah, I'd love to pray, you know, with our kids and all that. But, you know, and the, but the guys, I'm sure, were going crazy. But, you know, you never knew. So one of the things that was interesting was that when I first, first was in the role was, you know, they swore, cussed, you name it. It was bad language. Well, then they'd catch themselves and apologize to me. And they go, what are you apologizing to me for? I've heard a lot worse than that. You forgot I ran plants. Don't do it for me. I don't care. And so I think it's be real. The other thing is, you know, 
I, I did a study by Henry Blackaby a long time ago called Experiencing God. And one of the things that stuck, in me, stuck with me from that study, probably the most important thing was, anytime any spiritual conversation starts, stop what you're doing and listen because God's there. And so I would use that as a cue because people would come in or I would hear things and then I would all of a sudden be that opening. And, uh, and I know it's, it's hard, uh, but I tell you your example is the most powerful example. And uh, don't underestimate it. Please don't underestimate it. People are watching you all the time. They see everything. You know, another thing I did, just guys, because it was a way, how did you protect yourself? I had a guy when I was with General Foods, Phil Smith was the chairman of our board early on in career, and he, I heard him speak one time, and he said he'd always learned that he left meetings because, you know, bad things happen late, and don't get yourself in a position that you're in the middle of stuff that's going bad. And so I always went home early. You know, I might be at an event, 10 o'clock, I'd go home. But I would always protect myself some by being able to, you know, guard myself and not be in situations that potentially could get out of control. And, um, but I, you know, I, I mean, I had fun and I loved work, and I don't think, I don't think, you know, people knew I was a Christian, but I think they thought, you know, and I, I'll tell you, I, I think it, uh, you had to perform. That was not optional. Shareholders didn't care whether I was a Christian or not. <laughs> they didn't care at all. Um, and so uh, that, that's really, for me, probably the big thing. But don't underestimate the power. Other question, yeah. So, you know, all of us interact with all these people all the time um, in some form of fashion. And I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this, but um, when we interact with homeless people, just in your experience, if they're, if they're begging for money, for example, if we don't want to give them money, we have a preconceived notion about that, what are some tips or yeah. something we can say? It's a great question. Whatever. And so, first of all, I, I think that, you know, it's not usually a good idea to give people money. So let me just say that. Now, one thing I tell you is carry around with you sometimes uh, McDonald's cards or something that you give them that would translate only to food. Um, if you have the time and, and you feel it's safe, I'm going to tell you the most powerful thing is go sit with them while they eat. Take two seconds and just get to hear their story. And here's what they're going to do. They're gonna, you're going to ask them a question, and they're going to play with you. And then you're going to ask them a second question, and they're going to play with you. And when you finally get to a third question, they're going to believe maybe you really are interested in hearing their story. Don't overreact to the story. It'll probably shock you. I could shock you with stories. But I would just encourage you to, you know, if you can do that, you've got to be wise, too. You know, some of them, not everybody's there. Some have mental issues. You've got to be careful of that. Um, you know, the honest truth is there's almost no one in Atlanta that's going to starve that's on the street. You know, one of the problems we have, quite honestly, is people going on and feeding people on the street. It's like you're enabling them to stay on the street. So there's a bunch of women on Northside Drive. Anybody go up and down Northside Drive? You see the women on Northside Drive? Drives us crazy. It literally drives me crazy. Because here's what happens. So police will come by, take the tents. We try and get them in. The next thing you know, 24 hours later, somebody's went and bought them a tent. Because they think they're helping them. And so I would just encourage you to, to find that. Say hi to them. Look at them. Don't be afraid of that. I think definitely 
you know, say, say those things. But, and the only thing I say about money is, you gotta do what the Lord leads on your heart. Because I've read tons of stuff and I've given people money. I've given people 20 bucks. I've been, I mean, I, you know, break every rule. Because I feel like the Lord would just say to me, I need to do this right now. I'm not sure why. But I just need to do this. And I've heard stories of people whose lives literally been changed because somebody gave them $20. And they went and their life was changed and they came back and later. So, you know, I'm not here to play God. You, you, got, you trust what God tells you to do, but be wise. But, you know, the big thing is they don't believe they matter and they don't believe anybody listens. And nobody listens to them or talks to them. Yeah. Considering after every day of work, you go back home and you your family and have a home-cooked meal and everyone that you're working with, doesn't, how do you deal with that sense of, maybe call it guilt? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, so God's used a lot of the process to help me understand what's important and what's not important. And so I'd say over time I've gotten better. I would say that uh, I'm not sure that, uh, now, like the thing I shared about Owen, it, it, it was so hard for me getting in a car because I knew we'd just spent a day having a great time. I didn't sleep hardly that night, to be honest with you. And I think it partly because it was my grandson and I didn't have a great answer. But I think that, um, you know, I think one of the things the Lord has blessed me with is that I don't, I don't think I could do the work if I couldn't let go of the failures of people. Because here's one of the things, fellas. We play with lime ammunition. People die. There's 11 people that died in Atlanta on the streets this winter. 11 people. It's not practice rooms. People die. But I think one of the things the Lord has really blessed me with is the ability to not wallow in when, some, when something bad happens. And, uh, and it just, uh, I'm, th I'm really thankful for that. Uh, but I would tell you, I, I struggled terribly uh, trying to find balance. And when I tell you it's the hardest job, I probably shouldn't share this, but you know, I was in my job two and a half years, so don't tell anybody else. Um, and I had my chairman, my vice chairman, and another member of our board in my basement in January after my second year. And I said to him, I'm not telling you this because I'm gonna leave. But I'm telling you this, if I keep trying to do this the way I'm doing this, I'm gonna die. And I think I would have died. And, um, and a really great, great friend of mine helped me process through, which was kind of getting on paper, what the next five years looked like. But I have to tell you, it was, it was very, very hard for me. And it was because it was the urgency of the work, the challenges of 08, 09, 010, feeling this enormous responsibility, an organization that couldn't react. You know, one of the things that happens in business that doesn't happen, didn't happen that much in the nonprofit world, to be honest with you. In the business world, we get around the table, we all say, here's what we're gonna do, we break, and everybody goes and does it, right? Well, here's what I learned in, in, when I was first at the mission. We get around the table, we break, and everybody go, what do we do? I'm like, you, and you'd have to train. 
And so what I realized was, okay, it wasn't they weren't bad people. We'd never develop them. We'd never give them any skills. And so they couldn't do that. So before we could do anything, I had, we had to train people. And so that wore me out as well. So that's, you know, the, the and I think that uh, there's so many miracles of what God does. So one of the things I tell people all the time, and I want you to just go away knowing this, if you want to believe God is still in the miracle business, come and spend a day with us. Come and spend a day. He is still transforming lives. Lots of times when I'll speak or do something at a church, I'll go, I'm just here to report. He's still alive and he's still changing lives. Because I could, have, I could march tons of people up here. There's a guy who goes to Buckhead Church who's a great friend of mine. He's, there's another guy who spent 16 years under a bridge, guys. 16 years under a bridge. He's doing great. Six years clean and sober. He's doing great with his grandson, his grandkids. How do you get under a bridge? I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to understand from Joe, how did you get under a bridge? Well, here's how Joe got under a bridge. When Joe was growing up, his dad was a white-collar worker, probably like many of you in this room. The only difference was he beat his wife. And Joe and his brother watched his dad beat his wife, his mom. And they'd try and get him off. And it was just, it was a terrible situation. And so the dad would travel from Monday, come home on Thursday. And every Thursday night when he would come home, Joe, up until he was probably 13, wet the bed. And you know what his dad would do? Grab the mattress, bring it out front. So Friday morning, every kid that Joe went to school with could see. And so at 17, Joe ran away from home, hid in Atlanta for a year, got married, had a couple kids, but never really dealt with all of that pain. And then he started drinking, and then he drank more, and then he lost his wife, and then he lost his kids. And one day he literally took his truck and drove it to his brother's house and went under 85 and stayed under a bridge for 16 years. And if Joe was here right now, you would never believe he spent 16 years under a bridge. He looked like anybody in this room other than he's older. And God's transformed his life. And if he was here, he'd tell you God transformed his life. By the way, he was under the bridge one day. Somebody threw alcohol on him and threw a match. Caught him on fire. So he was in Grady with Burns burn unit. But his life is totally different. And what's so neat is he's his grandkids, his grandkids love that they get to spend time with him. It's so neat to see that, just to be able to see those. So guys, just know, uh, you know, you, you get it unbelievable to see what God does. And uh, so it's just neat to see. One more? Yes. For those of us who uh, are in that corporate world that you're in, some of you can very easily like get through our days and our lives without having this unexpected encounters that you talk about. Um, do you have any that you sent by or anything as to how, how we could put ourselves in questions where this might happen? Yeah, I, th I think it's a first thanks for the question. 
um, I would just ask yourself, are you around people that all look like you and interact like you? And give yourself a chance to be around some others. That would be one. Just to, just to learn. The other is, I know for all of you that are in the business world today, it's harder today than it was even when I was there. Because these don't help. They don't help me. I use them like crazy, but they don't help me. So the treadmill you're on is a really fast treadmill. The other thing that I would say is where are you getting your purpose? Is your purpose really from your job? Can you slow down enough to really say, you know what? Because part of it is creating enough margin in our lives to be able to have those relationships. It might even just be the friends you have. If I could encourage every man in here, the biggest thing I'd say is get in a group with two or three other men. If you are not in a group with two or three other men, you are headed for disaster. Mark my word for it. You're headed for disaster. You're looking at a living testimony of it. I'm not, and I'm telling you, I would have done tons more stupid things if it wasn't for Bob and Frank and John, who was the third guy that was with us, who's in heaven because he died of cancer. Get with other men. So if I was going to say, if there was anything I would do to do that differently for you guys, be with other men. And just share life. Because, you know, the challenge is, you know, and, and, I, and so I'm so guilty of this. So, you, you just gotta, this. so when, you, when you come into a room, we all put on our face, right? Or maybe you guys don't do that, right? Just me. So when I would come into the room as a CEO, I'd put on a face, right? So everybody knew who I was, what I was. You had to kind of live up to that standard or whatever. The truth of the matter is those two guys, they knew what was way behind the face. As did my wife and girls, by the way. They all knew. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a crash. So, I, you know, I, I, I would just say a great place to start is get some other men. And then I would even say, get those other men and go create some of those unexpected relationships. And if I could redo my men's group, if I could redo my men's group, I would have had a person of color from the beginning. I never had. I, I did with Crawford once I got to know him. Because I'm going to tell you guys, I could spend a whole night talking to you about that. Because the problem is, you don't know what you don't know. Because I didn't know what I didn't know. And when you hear the stories and you hear the history and you begin to understand it, it really gives you a totally unexpected change and a whole different world for grace. So. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs>